Welcome to the Abodo Presents podcast. My name is Daniel Gadsel. For our first podcast, we chat to Dennis Dowling from DCD about building billionaire bolt holes in Queenstown. I'm very lucky today to have Dennis Dowling of DCD with me. Dennis is an award-winning builder with a sustainability bent, and he's well-known for his high-end work in the central Otago region. Dennis, you've had quite a journey to become a high-end builder here in in Queenstown. Can you give us a quick summary of how you got here? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Well, Queenstown was a unique place for me to live in to begin with. So I, I grew up in Florida, went to Southern California. Auckland was the coldest place I'd lived before I came to Queenstown. And when I came down here, I needed to find a way to build a home that was going to be warm, was my primary focus. And I actually came down here to build in steel. Ultimately, we ended up in a completely different direction where we have gone with building airtight, thermally efficient homes as a foundational part of our business. And we arrived at that because there's such a benefit to the quality of life when you build a home that is warm. And because Queenstown has an incredibly challenging climate in that you can have a 20 degree spread within a single day. Having a home environment that is able to accommodate that without making the occupants uncomfortable is really positive. What we do in winter is we bring the boys in into the house in winter that we live in because it was our first home here and it's, it was a test bed for a lot of the things that we've been doing since then. And we bring the guys on that work with us through the home in winter because it really reflects that you walk in in the middle of winter and it's warm. And I think that has foundationally been what made us uh, move forward. And my wife was not a fan of the whole idea of building sustainably or or building warm because it took more time to research products. It meant we were spending some of the fun money on foundational things like windows. So there were other compromises we made in the build to be able to accommodate the performance elements of the project. We moved in on a day when it snowed. So several days a year, there's snow on the ground throughout Queenstown. And we happened to move in on a day where it snowed the next morning and it was on the ground for the next three days. And we had no heat in the house. Didn't have the gas connected, so we couldn't run the gas fire. And the only thing we could do was turn on the underfloor heating tiles was the only thing we had for for warmth in the house. And by the third day, Susanna said to me, I don't want to live in another normal house again. So there is an incredible lifestyle influence by building warm. And and that statement in and of itself helped, I guess, cement the position uh, of warmth as a cornerstone of how we build. Okay, that's great, Dennis. I mean, that was going to be my next question. What what do you think makes you different? But I I guess um, what you touched on there is the fact that the way that you build and the way that you build warm is one of your sort of defining characteristics. It certainly is. It was it was an interesting journey as a business. So obviously, when we first opened our doors, we were like, we would like to build houses. No one knows about us. So we'll just build whoever comes along. And there was some tentative forays into how do we get clients to move from where they are. So when we started, the idea of building warm was still in its infancy in terms of broad adoption by the public. However, the consultant side had been sort of fighting this battle for the last five to 10 years, and they were seeing very little progress. And so we were fortunate we came in just as the uptick and the knowledge of the general public grew. And so initially, we just, we built whatever home came available. The first call was through a plumber that said, look, I know a guy that can't find a builder, would you build for him? And so we built that house. Uh, About two years into our business, we said, that's it. We are not going to build homes that aren't thermally efficient. Uh, We don't agree with it philosophically. And that's certainly a part of what we do that I suppose makes us different in terms of we will not build for you if you don't build a warm house. But the foundational piece that I believe makes us quite different than most builders is that 
my career has been in professional project management and I've been very fortunate to work with companies that are largely client-centric and have not been founded on adversarial commercial engagements over contracts and we've carried that through into our business so our, our core focus is on transparency of product transparency of cost and transparency of outcome and those three things are probably the the elements that I feel really differentiate us from the traditional builder because we will say that we won't build that or we won't do it like this and the intention isn't to be someone who is uh, going to, to derail your project the intention is to ensure that the client and the building are best served at the completion of our build because ultimately what we're putting in place is ideally a home that'll be there for 50 years or more and when you're doing that we're thinking about how is, how is the next generation going to use this house? And am I proud for this house to, to show someone this home 10 years after I've finished it? So there's a huge emphasis on everything that we do um, has to be good enough that you can't tell if we finished this house last week or if we finished it 10 years from now. And so that, that sense of not compromising those key structure and physical components uh, does make us, I think, quite different than what most of the market is doing because we we don't respond to what uh, necessarily we don't respond to the drawings in front of us alone we want them to work well for the building and how the building performs is a very key focus and we bring the client along for the journey so in all of that obviously it means that we have to have clients who understand and have similar objectives and are willing to trust that we're going to provide good leadership to their project yeah, I think that's really important, uh, Dennis, and particularly due to the fact that we've got fairly low building codes and building standards that you take that initiative. One thing I'd like to, to sort of bring up now is there's been a lot made of this whole post-COVID migration of billionaires to the Queenstown region and how these ultra-rich are going to build homes in Queenstown. Is that something that you think is going to happen? So I think New Zealand is, is really well-placed globally to provide a home for people who are from other countries who have the the wherewithal to build something special in a very special environment and Queenstown certainly hosts that the culture here and the government here especially if you, as you look through the covid side of things whether you agree with the, what the government has done or not the response from the people has been fantastic the attitude of the general public is fantastic i mean this is a wonderful wonderful country to be in if something goes wrong so i think when you're looking at where can you put you or your family that New Zealand has a lot of appeal? And, and in there as well, I suppose, is the benefit of the currency and other things that may come into it. So, yes, I would expect that there will be, uh, again, a renewed interest in, in coming to Queenstown. And we have to remember, too, that a lot of these builds from high net worth individuals are simply a result of them traveling the world, finding a place that they like and thinking, you know what, I wouldn't mind coming back here. Let's quickly look at land before we go. And then they purchase something and, and the house gets built. So they're not necessarily strategically planned decisions to come out to New Zealand and look for property. They are a byproduct of someone wanting to go to someplace that's safe, that is beautiful, and that has a lovely cultural environment to be in. And I think the outcome from that is that we, by default, end up with more investment. And I think Queenstown's a very special place. So yes, I think that we will see more high net worth individuals coming in and wanting to develop here. And, and, and some of that is, is going to be predicated on the government's position in terms of allowing that to happen if you're from a different country. As it turns out, you're actually in the process of finishing off what would probably be referred to as a bolt hole on Queenstown's Jack's Point for what seems like a high net worth individual. The project's known as the Bunker. How did that project come about? <laughs> 
Well, that was really interesting. So what we initially met with the owner there, probably 18 months before he was able to acquire his section. And we looked at a number of different properties on his behalf. And he was focused on looking forward and taking care of his family in the future, providing them with a safe space to go to. And so this bill that we've done is really about their future. And one of the unique things about the project is that it has been essentially established on solid rock. And we were out there for months getting this rock out of the way so that we could put the home site in. And so the owner has aptly named the project Totoka, which is Maori for rock, which I think is great. We referred to it as the bunker because it uh, was really nestled in and hunkered in. And what happened was we went to lunch and the owner pulled out a piece of paper and he said, this is how I want my house to be. And he drew the shape out and said, this is kind of how I want the inside spacing to be. I want you to build it like that, put the team together and make it happen. So we were very, very fortunate that we had the trust of the owner. We were able to assemble uh, the architects and engineers that were necessary to, to get a project of this scale done. And we've been able to provide a lot of guidance and leadership in there. And the very first question we asked, we said, do you want this to be a warm house? Do you want this to be a quiet home? And do you want this to be a healthy home? When he answered yes to all of those things, we were able to set off in a particular direction to get to that outcome. And was there particular requirements other than the, the layout that you've mentioned? Were there any other particular requirements that the owner had? Absolutely. I think one of the key things for him is that he has a large ranch back home and he wanted to be able to come here. And in the event that something happened while he was here, he wanted the house to be as self-sufficient as possible. So the house has a massive solar array, which can just about run the entirety of the, of the home just on solar and a large battery bank that goes with that. We then have a diesel generator that provides redundancy there. Uh, we have a bore that is in addition to the reticulated water supply that comes to the property. And we have a, a, a water tank as well. So he can likely be self-sufficient on that property for about three months. So if there was a massive earthquake and he got separated out, then he can be there. And we look to what seismic code or, or strength that we could bring the building to as well. And we stopped short of going to a hospital grade style. But what happened is because of the wind loading on the building and the type of stone that we'd used on the outside and the weight associated with it, we ended up well, well exceeding the minimum seismic requirements. So he's got a, a very earthquake resilient building and he has the redundancy of services and systems in place as well. And to, to, to take that down to a more granular level, his diesel storage tank, we've provided him with an electric pump so he can just pump fuel into his diesel generator. And that's on the presumption, obviously, that there's power there or that the generator's running. But if the generator runs out, we've also provided him with a hand pump so he can hand pump uh, the fuel out. So it's those minor details that have made the home have a huge amount of resiliency and the ability for it to function. So if the primary house was damaged in some way and it wasn't suitable for occupancy, he could live in the secondary dwelling that we have on the on the detached building. This sounds like the definition of a bolt hole to me, Dennis. <laughs> hey, Dennis, I mean, I've been there on site. The It's a fantastic location. You mentioned some of the challenges around the foundation and literally chipping it out of rock. Was there any other really cha uh, serious challenges for the site, for the build? Well, Daniel, I suppose a project of any scale always has problems, you know, challenges. Interestingly, the biggest sort of surprise was all this rock. That was an unexpected outcome. And then we, we sort of found a solution for it. We got this rock saw that broke halfway through. So we had some of those things as well. 
But I'd say what I found to be the most challenging aspect is that the interior design called out for no embellishment. So everything is incredibly simple and incredibly clean and very crisp. And that has taken a huge amount of forethought and planning to get that right and to get that outcome that we wanted there. And we were in a quite a fortunate position that when the owner came to visit mid-build, we were just installing all these windows that had showed up from Germany. And the logistics around getting the windows here and getting the sizes right and then getting the subframes made for it was quite challenging. And so what we did is we had a concrete wall. We put a timber frame into that concrete wall and we allowed ourselves two mil of tolerance left to right and four mil of tolerance vertically. These windows showed up from Germany. The owner was there and we lifted them up by the crane and set them in place. And he turned around and said, wow, I cannot believe how well they fit. So I think that in and of itself was a good story that highlights you know, both the challenge and, and the outcome from it. But we used a lot of new technology that hadn't been tried before. So the whole roof system was craned into place using a company out of Nelson. And we won, uh, it was awarded earlier this year in the middle of COVID, a engineering innovation award for the use of timber, which is quite exciting. And I think there'll be more things like that that'll come out of the project as we move forward. Uh, they could have gone either way with the homeowner. I mean, if it didn't fit, you would have looked like a bit of a dick, I guess. But I can see there's those challenges being an issue. It would have it would have been a terrible, terrible outcome had he had he tried to fit that window and it hadn't worked. But it, it, as I said, in hindsight, what it did is it helped justify some of the costs that he'd seen come across his desk. So it made him feel, I think, very much justified that this fine work that we'd been talking about, he got to see the physical manifestation of that as we we're putting these windows in place. Now, these windows are heavy. I think the heaviest window we put in was just one pane of it was 425 kg. One window was 10 meters long. Still, four, four mil of tolerance over a 10 meter length is, is asking a lot from the team and the products and everything else, and it all went through really beautifully. I mean, how did you manage that risk? Normally, you'd have the, the joiner come on site and measure it up themselves. Like, I take it that you did the measuring and then sent that back to Germany? So Germany told us what the windows were. And then we built to that standard. So typically what we follow is, is the expectation that we're going to get it right. You tell us what we need to do and we'll take care of our business, which is getting it right and getting the size right. That's, that is something that we do focus on because these windows are 12, 16, 18 weeks out before they arrive on site. So we certainly don't want to frame the opening and then send off some window measurements. Well, that makes sense. Hey, look, you've, you've made a really good point earlier on that you only want to build warm homes. And I, I understand the reason behind that. And I think that's a great initiative. That's one measure of sustainability, I guess, and the fact that operational carbon is going to be minimized uh, during the, the use of the home. What about embodied carbon in the building materials? Is that something you give a lot of thought to? It is something that we consider, and it is a challenge, I think, to get that balance right. So if you look at this project, that we used a polyblock system, which came out of Canada, and we used concrete, which is batched locally, but uses materials that are imported. And those were the core building elements. The roof and so forth was made out of lightweight construction, so it was proposed initially to do the roof in, in concrete. And I rejected that because I wanted a really seismically resilient building that didn't have to have a lot of loads that allowed for some flexibility in terms of the building movement. And so we went to this lightweight timber top and that saved a lot of material. We looked at using uh, insulation in the sparest form that we could, so to speak, but PIR insulation is, is perhaps not the greatest for the planet either. So the comfort that we take as we move through these different pieces is that we know that this building is suitable for the next 
hundred years plus. And I think I've got to look at that as the, the outcome that we want to get. So while there is some embodied carbon within the building itself, unless you are someone who takes a very specific interest in trying to be as carbon conscientious as you can be, it's extremely difficult, in my opinion, to do something like build a new house from all brand new material and do that well without perhaps adversely using more embodied carbon than you would like to. And the idea being that as long as that building has the ability to withstand what's expected in the region by being climatically responding well to things like earthquakes, if that's appropriate, or typhoons, if that's appropriate, by being able to do those things and have that level of resilience that allows that building to be in place for a long period of time, I think that's really key and very important. So for example, our windows can be removed and reinstalled if you wanted to upgrade them in the future without doing any damaging work to the building. You don't have to declad the building and reflash them. They can all be pulled out from the inside and then drop right back in again. So those sort of elements I think are very positive about giving some building pliability in the future and allowing it to work. I think there is this, this, this very fundamental challenge when you really talk about sustainability and construction with new materials you know, how sustainable can you really be? What we do is we try to focus on products that are as clean and environmentally sensitive as practical. So for instance, we use wool insulation where we can. We use locally sourced timbers. You know, it's very common, low VOC or, or natural paints. And many of these things are, are, we've got a catalog now that we've maintained on the books to help uh, our clients choose. We do give our clients product ranges and say you can only choose these products because we feel these products are the, are the most sustainable. But I, I do take a look at what we're doing and we've gone into this meadow and we've taken this massive piece of equipment and we've knocked it all about and we've rechanged the way that water is going to flow through the place and then we've built this building in place that we're then going to put power and lights and energy into. And I think it's very difficult to sit back and say, look at that sustainable building that I've built. Because it, you do have to use a, a somewhat flexible definition of sustainability. In an ideal scenario, we could reuse old materials and so forth. But we find that that's often very challenging with council to be able to integrate that. So for the most part, we try to be sensitive with the materials we use. Well, the good news, Dennis, is that you've got quite a few cubic metres of Vibodo's natural timber cladding used on the job. So that'll offset um, two or three tonnes of, of carbon. So you can sleep well at night thinking about that. The great thing about the Aboto product is that I, I know that it hasn't spent, you know, most of its life being transported. And I think that's one of the things that really has always frustrated me about cedar. So there's all these wonderful qualities of cedar, which has really put it at the top of the pecking order for so long in terms of building cladding durability when you want to get away from things like metal. And yet that that product is cut in another country, it's transported from the forest, it's then transported from the forest to the port, then from the port to New Zealand, then from, you know, that log is then transported to a place where it gets cut, and then it gets transported to the end of the island here to us, and then we put it on the building. And that's really, I find now that incredibly frustrating. So to be able to use something like a Bodo, which has all of the resilience of cedar, if not an improvement on it, and has what I think are some amazing coatings. And, and I know we use Psyox on this product project and you may have some questions as to why we use Psyox. But the outcome from using a Bodo is that we've got this incredibly stable product that can take the weathering and the beating that it's going to get from the sun and these horrific winds that are going to rip through it. And it's going to look great because it has to fit into, that product had to fit into our model of is it going to look good in 10 years' time? 
Dennis, you touched on almost a circular economy model for those windows. I think that's fantastic. Is that something that is readily available in New Zealand? Are there window manufacturers that can offer sort of almost like a replaceable system? There are, yes. And I think one of the unique challenges that I suppose every builder has is that you're always balancing the budget against product selection. And for a period of time, it has been more cost-effective to bring windows in directly from the likes of Germany than it has been to produce them locally. And so many of the local manufacturers of windows, of European-style, high-performing, triple-glazed, airtight windows, those entities that used to construct them, many of them have converted to either being import-only because of the cost-effectiveness of it, or they have supplemented their line of locally-made windows with imported windows. And what has happened in the very recent times is suddenly the locally supported windows have now started to become more cost effective. So we can start looking at that again because we know that will fit in with the, with the price point of our client. And those locally produced windows are installed and can be retrofitted and removed and reinstalled in the same way. We do our windows, we install our windows in a particular way that allows them to be removed and reinstalled. And we've even done them in homes where we've put in a polished concrete floor but we've set the whole window opening up. So if someone converted to a wood floor later, they could just pull that window out and step it up and put it back in the hole again. And I think that sort of pliability, as I was saying earlier, in your, in your building design is really important to think about how will the future user potentially inter interact with this home. That's fantastic. So if you're a homeowner, would you expect a significant increase in cost to have a removable window? It's significant if you set it to the side on its own. However, because the bulk of our work is at a price point where you're doing nice things anyways, the additional cost of making that window more able to be removed and reinstalled without damaging anything else drops down to usually less than 1% of the cost of the job. So I'd say it's a, an affordable alternative. We have a, a, another line of buildings which we're just starting to work in with now when you're looking at a home that's 325,000 or 375,000 cost to build, that sort of system doesn't work as effectively because you would be adding quite a significant percentage to that home build to be able to make the window come in and out. And so we go back to installing the windows in a more conventional method. Obviously, you've made it clear that energy efficiency and comfort are sort of key drivers for you. Why is sustainability something that's important for you personally? I suppose one of the key drivers for the business was that we wanted to improve the quality of life for other people. So I mentioned a moment ago that we have this alternative product that's, you know, to give you an idea, $325,000 might be 10% of a, of a contract that we might traditionally do for a new home. And so that's a huge variance from what you would think would be the core business of a high-end builder. But my focus has always been on, I believe that with the right input, I can change the way the building industry works. That's a very lofty goal and perhaps that's a bit aspirational and maybe I'm tilting at windmills to a certain extent, but I believe that I can change the way that the building industry does business by providing leadership and showcasing how cost-effective buildings can be done to a much higher standard than what we're doing now simply by changing the way that it gets done. So if you couple that mantra of wanting to do better and wanting to improve the quality of people's lives within their home, sustainability is a natural element of that, that you can't really achieve your objective without being considerate of 
what's happening to these materials that you're putting into the building, what's happening before they get there, what's happening while they're in it, and how long will they last. And so those three pieces are very much a part of creating a healthy, warm, long-term, stable environment for the building environment itself and for the, the homeowner. Well, that's great. You're lifting the standard, I guess, in, in the market. And I also like the approach of actually sort of really not railroading, but certainly pointing, firmly pointing homeowners in the direction of decisions that are that they're ultimately going to get the benefit from. So that's great. Dennis, uh, we're going to wrap it up here. If people want to get a hold of you or, or see your work, how can they do that? The best way to get a hold of me is either through email, which is Dennis with two N's at dcd.co.nz or go to our website, which is dcd.co.nz and take a look at uh, the variety of projects that we've done there. You'll either hear from me or you'll hear from one of the girls in the office initially and then uh, we can pick up the conversation from there. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Dennis. Keep on the good work. Thank you, Daniel. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this podcast, brought to you as part of the Abodo Presents series.